So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, reading the first four verses. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For forty days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to bring it alive for us. Heavenly Father, as we look upon this scene between your son and the enemy, the adversary, the accuser, the slanderer, the one who is the great deceiver of all people, let us, Lord, learn from this encounter, and not just this one, but the ones that we will study next week and perhaps the week after that. Let us learn from our Lord as he faces this Unfeshtung in the desert. Let us understand what that means before this day is out. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as you just probably figured out from that prayer, I have a new word for you this morning. And I know some of you just love these words, but it's a word that more than likely you have not heard before, although you are very familiar, if you're a Christian, with what it means. And the word is Angfestung. Can you say that with me? Angfestung. It's German. And it was coined by Martin Luther, or it was used most heavily by Martin Luther. And let me read to you what Martin Luther wrote about this about 15 years after the beginning of the Reformation. He said, if I should live a while longer, I would like to write a book about Anfestung. Without it, no man can rightly understand the Holy Scriptures or know what the fear and love of God is all about. In fact, without Anfestung, one does not really know what the spiritual life is. Well, that sounds pretty important, doesn't it? So I think it would behoove us to understand what Luther meant by that German word, Anfestung. Well, one of the great Luther scholars was a man who was named Roland Bainton, and he wrote several books on Martin Luther, and this is how he described on Festung. So listen, or you're not going to understand anything that comes after this. It's a two-pronged type of, a t- of situation, not an attack. It's an attack and one that allows the attack. It's two-pronged, and it looks like this. This is what he says. It is a trial sent by God to test a man. That's one prong. And on the other one, it is an assault by the devil to destroy man. So in order to understand on Feshtung, you have to understand that both of those are going on at the same time. Now, he goes on to further describe it. He says, it is all the doubt, turmoil, pain, tremor, panic, despair, desolation, and desperation which invade the spirit of a man. It is when Satan attacks with everything he has and God, according to his providence, allows it. Now, Martin Luther experienced Angfechtung both before he was a Christian and after a Christian. It takes a little bit of a, of a different um, uh, a, a tone uh, depending on whether you're a believer or whether you're a not believer. But the Bible, according to Dr. Scroll, actually brought this to my attention. The, 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 the Bible tells us of, of quite a few different examples of Angfechtung. The one that we're really going to key on this morning is the Garden of Eden. Because when Adam and Eve are facing the serpent, and in the Garden of Eden, it is the attack, the, the all-out spiritual war that Satan wages on those who are following God. But it is also the attack or the test 
that say Abraham went through. Because if you remember, Abraham was told to take his son Isaac and take him up to the Moriah Mountains and sacrifice him. So God put him to the test. So it's both of those going on at the same time. Probably the best example in the Old Testament of Angfeshtung is the story of Job. And if you want to just picture, just get a graphic image of Anfekstun in your head, just imagine Job sitting on the ash pile, scraping himself with a piece of pottery because he's covered with terrible boils. By that time, Satan has really attacked him. He's lost his land. He's lost his livestock. He's lost his wealth. He's lost his children. And so severe was his unfeshtung that his wife advised him simply to curse God and die. He didn't do it. Never did. He conquered unfeshtung. So, so intense, and, and Dr. Sproul tells this story, so intense was Luther's Angfechtung that he fought it all his life. In fact, it got so severe one day that he stood up and threw an inkwell at the devil. <laughs> because that's how real he was to him. Because he was constantly uh, uh, batting him. But whether we're talking about Job or whether we're talking about Luther whether we're talking about Adam and Eve, whether we're talking about Abraham or Joseph or any of the biblical characters, the degree of angfeshtung that they went through is nothing like what we're going to read about that's going to occur in the Judean wilderness. In fact, this is what Dr. Sproul says about that. He says the angfeshtung that besieged Martin Luther was not worthy to be compared to the assault that was waged against Jesus. The devil tormented Martin Luther, assaulted him, and attacked him. But now in the Judean wilderness, it's all-out war. It is the blitzkrieg of hell coming against our Savior. Brothers and sisters, remember that phrase. The blitzkrieg, that, that powerful strike of the enemy. It's the blitzkrieg of hell that is coming against Jesus. Now, we're going to study these temptations and we're going to understand something that not only is, is it all-out warfare in the Judean wilderness, but it's the Spirit who leads Jesus into that. So we have, on the one hand, the testing, the disciplining, not really with Jesus, but the preparation that is occurring for his ministry that is going on, that God means it for good and the devil means it for evil, but the devil is enjoying every minute of it. He's the one on the other end of the spear. And so what we're going to do here is we're going to try to to pick out of this first temptation his modus operandi. We're going to try to pick up his strategy. And there'll be four of them. And when we can identify that strategy and put it into perspective, the fact that God is the one that allows on Fechtun, it's not going to happen to a Christian unless God allows it. Now, if we put it into that perspective, then we're going to be able to stand against the attack of Satan all the better. Now, where we are in the book of Luke, we sort of turn to page here. We've been talking about John the Baptist, before that the Nativity, and now... Finally, we're focusing on Jesus. But in one sense, we haven't quite got there yet. In one sense, we're still in Luke's prologue. And I'll explain this better when we get to the third temptation. But the actual ministry of Jesus isn't going to start till the 14th verse. So we can, in one sense, see this as the end of the transition period that we've talked about. And that's why two things we talked about last week are so important as context to this morning's study. First of all, the baptism of Jesus. And if you remember, Luke just kind of skirted right past the details of the baptism until he got to the acclamation from on high when the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus and the words of God the Father were spoken, you are my beloved son in whom you are well pleased. We're going to see Satan attack that during these temptations. But then secondly, we saw that Luke took us through that genealogy all the way back to the garden. And we formed a comparison between the first Adam 
and the second Adam, Jesus. And we're going to continue that comparison this morning as we talk about the unfestung of both of them. So with that said, let's jump right into our texts, starting in the first verse. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. Now, first thing that we read is that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. That's a word that means actually filled to the brim, like a beaker that you can't put any more water in. Or probably better, it means to be totally saturated with something. Now, we remember from the baptism that the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove. But what this points out is that when Jesus goes into this wilderness, that he is has a close relationship the entire time with the Spirit. And I know that's a little bit confusing because Jesus has a God nature and then the Holy Spirit. Yeah. But the focus here is on the temptations and on the man nature, the human nature of Jesus. But he, he's closely in, uh, there with the Spirit. So he's full of the Spirit and he returns from the Jordan, led into the wilderness. Now there's a transition, if you can keep those two in mind. The Jordan and the acclamation from heaven and the beauty of the baptism and then now the desolation of the wilderness as he goes through this temptation. But notice what it, what Luke says there. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Now the first thing I want to point out here, brothers and sisters, and we need to make sure we understand this, is that there is no question from any of the Gospels that Jesus was led into this temptation by the Holy Spirit of God. That means... That what happens to Jesus in the desert is according to the sovereignty of God. But we need to be very careful. That does not make the Lord the author of his temptation. And James probably spells this out as good as anyone when he says, But the um, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So this is a very vital part of Anfeshtung, that we understand that God is very much a part of it. He is sovereign over all things, but he's not the one at the other end of the spear enjoying all the misery he's putting you through. That's the devil. So the Lord is allowing the devil to have his way, even as we saw in the story of Job, because The Lord removed the hedge of protection that he had around Job and allowed Satan to attack him. Now, just one other thing I want to point out there that Luke says that he was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. doesn't say into the wilderness, but in the wilderness. In fact, the New American Standard translates that, that he was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. Now, the rest of the Gospels make it clear that he was driven. Actually, Mark uses that word. The Spirit drove him into the wilderness. But Luke adds a little bit of richness here by telling us that the Spirit was with him the whole time. And that the Spirit was actually leading him while he was in the the wilderness all 40 days of that time. Now... That's going to become important later on, and and I'll bring that up as we get to that. But just remember that the Spirit is constantly with Jesus, as we are going to see. Also, the devil was constantly tempting him. We get there in a few minutes. But notice that he is being led by the Spirit in the wilderness. The wilderness is the Judean wilderness to the south and east of Jerusalem. And I have told you before, we've been there Nothing lives. It is one of the most desolate places on earth. Nothing but rock and sand. I mean, there's not even scrub brush. It is literally, virtually, you can't see anything alive in that place. Animal-wise, I'm told it's scorpions and snakes and lizards and maybe an occasional bird. But we saw, except in places where water was, we didn't see anything alive in that desert. And there's a reason, there's a purpose, and we need to recognize how desolate the desert that Jesus was in and how lifeless it was. And finally, we, we read that he was there 40 days. Now, when you read that number, 40, 
Actually, some associations ought to come to mind. It is peppered throughout the scriptures. And I wish, brothers and sisters, that I had time this morning to share with you all the Old Testament richness that is here. I mean, there are allusions, there, there's associations, there's typography going on, but I'm just going to have to brush against them because I simply don't have time to do it. But if you think about the Spirit leading Jesus around the wilderness for 40 days, well, at least my mind goes directly to the Spirit leading the children of Israel around for 40 years. And so immediately we see a, an association that I think the devil is going to pick up on later. And that is that we've already seen Jesus as the second Adam. Well, here we see him as sort of the second son. Because if you go back to Exodus, you may remember God said to Moses, you go tell Pharaoh that Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go. So Israel, representing the first son, the recalcitrant, the rebellious son, led around by the Spirit for 40 years. Now the better son, the second son, is being led about the Spirit for 40 days and a comparison already made there. But there's another comparison because actually Moses was led into that desert. Calvin points out, and again, I just have to barely touch on this. Calvin points out that um, Jesus was led in the desert basically for two reasons. The primary one we're going to study, that's going to be our focus this morning, is the temptations. But also he was led there in preparation. And in that sense, he's a better Moses because that's exactly what happened to Moses. Moses was led, and that was the Sinai wilderness, but he was led into the wilderness to the burning bush. And that is where he was given his commission to be the deliverer of God's people. Well, that's kind of what's happening here with Jesus too. He's being commissioned and prepared in this wilderness to be the deliverer, the ultimate deliverer, deliverer, capital D, of God's people. Well, anyway, that's what's going on in the wilderness. That sort of sets the stage. Now, let's continue in that second verse, and we will see the condition that Jesus is in, which is also very important. Uh, For 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Now, here, let's just kind of hold it there, because I want you to see something. Notice that Luke says, being tempted by. That uses a word that is an ongoing word. So, The other Gospels make it very clear, and Luke actually does a little bit later on, that the temptation that we're talking about came at the end of this 40 days when Jesus was at his weakest. But Luke sort of adds to it by giving us this continuation and telling us that that's not the only temptation Jesus went. So you have this amazing picture of the Spirit leading Jesus through the wilderness and all the while, like a dog barking at their heels, there's the enemy to continually tempt him a whole time. Now, some people say, well, that's kind of a conflict. You know, that's, that's a conflict between what Luke sees and what Matthew sees, for instance. But no, it's not. As as Dr. Sproul said, this is all-out spiritual warfare, brothers and sisters, that we are seeing happening in that Judean wilderness. And when you have a war, it doesn't necessarily consist of one battle. There are skirmishes, there's battles, there's big battles and little battles and epic battles. And the epic battle is going to come at the end, but all during the time that Jesus was spending those 40 days, the devil is barking at his heels. And that's where we need to turn our attention to just briefly because he is the instigator of this. He was the instigator of Anfechtung in the Garden of Eden. He was the instigator of Anfechtung with Job. He's the instigator of Anfechtung with Jesus. And he is the instigator of Anfechtung with you and with me. So we need to know who our enemy is. The word devil is a Greek word. And it means accuser or slanderer. And what it refers to is someone who brings accusations against another with hostile intent. If I had time, I was going to take you back to the 12th chapter of Revelation. You know I love that chapter. And I'm just going to have to tell you that's your homework. I want you to go home and I want you to read the whole 12th chapter of Revelation and then turn back and read the first two chapters of Job in the context of what I tell you this morning about Unfectum. And you're going to see it 
graphically displayed there because that's exactly what John tells us in Revelation is that he's the accuser of the saints. Night and day, he's accusing them before the Lord, deceiving, trying to deceive God. That's how crazy the devil is. But Mark uses another word to refer to the devil, and that's the word Satan. And that's a Hebrew word. And that means adversary or enemy. He's our enemy. He's our adversary. And he will attack ruthlessly and with ferocity anyone who tries to walk the straight path with Christ. That's all part of Angfestung, the the, the, the work of the devil. And as I said, I'd love to go that deeper into that, but we just don't have time. So I'm going to give you that homework so you can do it on your own. But notice the situation that Jesus is in. He's being tempted by the devil. We're still in verse 2. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, <laughs> he was hungry. I think I'm beginning to realize that Luke is kind of the master of understatement here. I mean, if I had been 40 days in the desert in that hot sun and I hadn't eaten anything, I don't think I would describe myself as hungry. Uh, I think I would say I was famished. I, I was starved halfway to death. I, I'm emaciated. I mean, that's the situation that Jesus is in. And that's an important picture for us to see because he is, he's been fasting for those 40 days. Now, the question comes to my mind, do you think that was a a voluntary fast? Do you think that was something Jesus was doing purposefully on his own? Because after all, we go back to the baptism, we see that after the baptism, he he was praying. And prayer and fasting are intricately tied together. And so therefore, it could be that Jesus had actually gone into the desert to be closer to his Lord. Because the desert was also a place that God could be found. And through fasting, you sort of quicken yourself to the presence of God. But that might be true. But I think really the reason, because he was driven into that desert, I think this is the will of God, folks. I think that God wants him to be absolutely as physically weak as you can possibly be when this unfeshtung comes at him. When the temptation of Satan comes, he wants him to be absolutely as weak as he can be. So I I believe that this this, uh, uh, 40-day fast was something that was ordained by God. In fact, how do we know that the spirit wasn't leading him around in the desert to make sure he didn't find any food, you know, so that he would be emaciated when the devil unleashed the hounds of hell. And that's what we're about to see. Now, we've made many comparisons here between Jesus being the second Moses, Jesus being the second son. But last week, it was primarily Jesus as the second Adam. And that's where I want to go now. Because I want to make a comparison between the Anfeshtung of Adam and the Anfeshtung of Jesus. First of all, Jesus physically was a typical first century Jewish human being. Not very different than we are. Uh, Not unlike us. Adam, on the other hand, was at the top of the gene pool. Okay? And now the gene pool has dissipated for over the, over the millennia. And, and you know, so we're, we're not like Adam was. Adam, God looked at Adam and Eve and said, boy, they're good. You know, this is my idea of human beings, those two together. And so they're probably bigger and taller and healthier and exuberant. They would walk in here, be head and shoulders above every single one of us, and he would just exude health and well-being. I mean, he was, and before, he's before the fall, okay? So all of this is, is the nature. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, is nothing to look at. And I mean that respectfully because Isaiah tells us that. There was nothing special about Jesus to make him point him out. He was another face in the crowd, as we would see. So you take Jesus already starting as a first century human being, and then you start taking away food for 40 days. I could hardly think straight. I, I, I mean, he could barely walk because of the physical state that he was in. Well, going back to the garden, you have to realize something about Adam. 
Adam had food literally hanging from the trees all around him. The man had never missed a meal in his life, okay? I mean, he could eat from any tree that he wanted to. So, I mean, there was no lack of food whatsoever. Jesus not only had been without food for 40 days, he couldn't get any food because there was none to be had. And I think the Spirit had made sure of that. Furthermore, Adam's at home. Adam is where God placed him. Adam is before the fall. There's no sin in the world at that particular point in time. And he has his helpmate, his complement, his better half beside him. He's got Eve with him. And together they're the superhuman that God made to rule his kingdom. Adam has everything going for him. And Jesus has nothing going for him from a human point of view. Yet Jesus is going to conquer on Fechtum. Having trouble pronouncing that. But Adam will fail. And that's the reason we want to see how Jesus does it. And that's the reason we're going to pull out some of these stratagems of the devil. First stratagem we see right here. We see right here when we read that he had had nothing. And when the 40 days were ended, that's when the blitzkrieg from hell started. So the first stratagem of Satan is this. He waits until you are at your weakest. He's patient. He's a hunter. And so he will wait until the opportune time to strike. And he's been following Jesus around, landing little skirmishes here and there, but now he sees 40 days with no food, physically weak, mind having a difficulty in focusing, now's the time to strike. So that's the first stratagem we need to recognize. He waits until you are at your weakest. That's when he attacks. Now we're going to pick out the other stratagems. Starting in the third verse, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, oh my goodness, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. If you are the son of God, second stratagem right there. What the devil does and he does it so effectively is get you to doubt what God said. Okay, We know what God said. Because we just read it in the baptism. You are my beloved son. But now Jesus, 40 days later with no food and his mind clouded. The devil says, did you really hear him say you were the son of God? Really? Are you really his son? If you're the son of God, then I'm going to give you a task. Well, he's questioning. He's drawing doubt into or trying to doubt into Jesus' mind. Trying to confuse him about what God has said so that he will forget that he is actually the son of God. He did that to Eve, didn't he? You remember going back to the garden? He comes into the garden and he says, did God really say that you can't eat from this tree? Are you sure you heard him correctly? Are you sure that's the word of God? Because he didn't tell me that. So the devil plays with your mind, brothers and sisters, and we're going to get to later on how he plays with ours. Hadn't learned any new tricks, but it is just as effective now as it was against Adam and Eve. This is the second premise or the second stratagem of Anfeshtung. That he, that he creates doubt in not only the word of God, but the value of his law, his attentiveness, his providence, his motives, and even his goodness. And if he can get you to doubt God or doubt the word of God, he's going to replace it with his own word. And that's the third. Because what he's going to do is he's going to Try to drown you, if you will, with a, with a river of lies. When he says that if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, there's several things involved with that. So, and again, I wish I had time to go back and really develop the Old Testament allusions here. But remember, I, I pointed out that, that Israel was the firstborn son of God and God referred to them as my firstborn son. And so Jesus is kind of like the better son. Well, part of what the devil is pointing out says, well, wait a minute, if you're the son of God, then how come God's not taking care of you the way he took care of the first son? Because after all, for 40 years, they were in the desert and he made sure they had manna every morning except the Sabbath. And he made sure they had quail. And every time they struck a lock, the rock, water came out. How come he's not taking care of you if you're the son of God? He's kind of thrown you to the wolves, hadn't he? Are you really going to put your trust in him? 
Are you really going to believe the word that he has given? You see, he's not only creating doubt, he's creating a falsehood that God is not trustworthy. He is not worth believing. But obviously, that's not going to work on Jesus. So perhaps, and I'm reading stuff into this now, perhaps the devil tried a different tact. Okay, let's just, for argument's sake, Let's just assume that you are the son of God. Let, let's, let's say that you heard what he said and he said it right and you're really his son. So why do you think he hasn't provided for you? Obviously, he provided for the first son. But, you know, let's assume that you're the second son. Don't you think he's waiting for you to do something? Don't you think that he's put you in this situation and given you these powers so that you'll step out and show your own authority? That you'll turn this stone into bread? That you'll do what you're supposed to do? After all, God helps those who help themselves, right? So what he wants you to do is to get out ahead of him. You need to pray him in, as someone told me sometime. We have to get out in front of the Lord and pray him in or else he's not going to know which way to go. You need to take matters into your own hands. You see how false that is? You see how diabolical and evil this deceiver is? He's trying to use every trick that he possibly can in the book to get Jesus to form a division with his father. You see, that's the whole purpose here. He's trying to form a division. That's what he did successfully in the Garden of Eden. He made a division between God and Adam and Eve. That division was their sinfulness. And so now he is pulling out the stops with Jesus to bring falsehood into picture. And that, brothers and sisters, is stratagem number three. Jesus told us himself back in the eighth chapter of John that the devil is a liar. In fact, he doesn't even know the truth. He said this, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so when he tells Jesus, or let's go back to the garden, when he tells um, Eve that, oh, okay, guess what? God said you'll die. No, you won't die. Okay, so you have two words here. Which word did Eve believe? Which word did Adam believe? That's extraordinary. That Adam would believe the word of a creature, a fallen, evil creature over the word of God. God says you can have any fruit in this entire paradise except that one. You see, Jesus was tempted in his lack of food. Adam is being tempted because he wants more. You know, I can have anything but... I want the one that I can't have. He's bringing out the very depth of of, of what the evil thought is, the self-focused evil thought of God. But you know something? That does not follow. As I said, Satan's a liar. And you go back to the Garden of Eden, and you see that he lied bold-faced. To Eve and Eve fell for it and Adam fell for it. But his, his falsehoods against Jesus are much more subtle. They're, they're not the same kind that he's bringing against Eve and, and we'll talk about another kind a little bit later on. But they're far more subtle. You know, he uses what's known as a faulty premise. And a faulty premise is simply this. It is a premise that doesn't necessarily hold true, and yet you state it in such a way that it's the logical explanation for whatever you're talking about. Now, those of you who were here during our study of John, you may remember that I made a very big deal when we were going through the upper room discourse of the many times that Jesus presented his disciples with an if then statement. I'm an old programmer. If then statements are what you build all your programs on. That's how you make your decisions. Well, an if then statement, I said, and we drill this into you, like for instance, the one Jesus says in the 15th chapter, if you love me, then you will keep my commandments. And we made a very big deal that if the if clause 
evaluates to true, if you love me, then the then clause will 100% of the time be executed. But that all falls apart if the then clause is false. And sometimes it is so close to the truth that you have a hard time recognizing it. Let me give you an example of a faulty premise. I might say to you, if you are human, you gotta love chocolate. And some of you would say, I'm with you. There we go. I love chocolate and I'm a human. But wait a minute. I'm a human too. The, the if part of that evaluates to true. I am a human, but guess what? I know this makes me crazy and you think that I'm absolutely bizarre, but I don't like chocolate. I certainly don't love it. I know, I know you think that's really strange, but I don't like chocolate. So therefore, it's a faulty premise. It doesn't follow that if I'm a human, I love chocolate. But if you're not careful, you're going to get so wrapped up in the if part of that, you're going to say, well, goodness, I didn't know I loved chocolate, but I guess I do because I'm human, right? Obviously. And when that is in the, in the grips of a clever deceiver like Satan, oh my goodness, it is so easy to lead people astray. So he says to Jesus, if you're the son of God, then... You will command this stone and turn it into bread. But brothers and sisters, that doesn't follow. That's a faulty premise. That's a falsehood. And ultimately, that is a bold-faced lie. Because Jesus can easily say, no, it does not follow that I am going to seek my own physical goodwill uh, at the expense of my father's will. It doesn't mean I'm going to rebel against him. It doesn't mean that I'm going to step out in front of him. It doesn't mean that I am going to take matters into my own hands. In fact, Jesus told us exactly the opposite, leaving us a beautiful model in the fifth chapter of John. He said, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. So Jesus says, there's no way I'm going to step out of my father's will, my father's providence, my father's decree, because I'm the son of man, because I'm the son, I'm sorry, because I'm the son of God, I will obviously keep everything that he has to do. So therefore, the false premise is the way that, that I will try to bring Jesus down. So that's stratagem number three. That he's going he's gonna, to, in one way or another, lie to you. And find a way to get you to do something that you probably don't even want to do by simply using that sort of reverse logic. And then finally, the fourth stratagem, when he's got you where he wants you, when he's got you weak, when he's got you confused, when he's inundated you with lies, that's when he strikes. That's when he hits you with the temptation. And that's when he hit Jesus with the temptation. And it was far more than just the physical need that Jesus had. Yes, he was starving and he needed that bread. But it goes beyond. It was distrusting the Father. It was distrusting his providence, his will, his decree, his law, his essence, his provision and his sustenance. It is to distrust his word, to question his motive and actually to even question his goodness. All of that would have been wrapped up if Jesus had done what the devil said for him to do. So let me just review real quickly. Let me just give you a quick summary of what will, of, of, the, of the devil's uh, strategies. First, he's going to wait till you're weak. Secondly, he's going to confuse you about the word. Thirdly, he's going to lie to you. And fourthly, he's going to hit you with everything he has when he has you where he wants you. Now, what we need to do right now, brothers and sisters, because there are not a single one of us that can stand against that, we need to go to the fourth verse and we need to see what our Lord does because our Lord conquers on tongue. Okay? And here's the way he did it. Jesus answered him. It is written. Ha! That's it, boy. It is written. Okay? Three times he's going to quote to the devil. 
Three times he's going to refer to the fact that, okay, let me respond to what you're having to say here by telling you the truth of these things. Let me respond because you're telling me that my father's word is not worth listening to. Well, I'm going to quote it right back to you. Every single time Jesus stood on the word of God. And that is our rock, brothers and sisters. In other words, what he's saying, when the devil comes to him and he says, okay, this is what you'll do if you're the son of God. Jesus says, threw the gauntlet down. And he says, okay, game on. I can play this game because I am, I, I am wary of your tricks. Okay, so the more... You tell me that my father's word is untrustworthy. The more you try to, to twist it and corrupt it, the more that you tell me to doubt it and be confused of it, I'm just going to quote it right back to you. I'm just going to throw it right back in your face. And you know something? The more that you teach me, or the more that you tell me that I need to distrust my father, the more that you try to drive a wedge between my father and me, I am simply going to pursue him all the more. I am going to praise him. I'm going to glorify him. I'm going to worship him. And I'm going to obey him. And you can throw anything you want at me, but I am going to stand on the rock. Thirdly, you throw your river at lies at me. You try to lie to me. You try to catch me in a clever trick. Well, I am going to respond with the one thing you cannot bear. And that's the truth. It burns a hole in you. You can't stand it. It makes you run. So every time you tell me a falsehood, I'm going to respond to you with the truth. Because this is my rock. This is where I stand. On the word of God. On the truth of God. On the will of God. On the law of God. On the decree of God. On the power of God. On the compassion of God. On the grace of God. I stand upon that rock and you can't budge me. That, brothers and sisters, is how you conquer on Feshtong. And so in this particular instance, he's going to use the same one all the way through. In this particular instance, <clears throat> he, um, uh, he, he quotes from Deuteronomy when he says um, there at the end, man shall not live by bread alone. And again, I wish I could take you back to Deuteronomy 8 and we could read it in its context. Uh, Moses is recounting the wilderness years with those who are just about ready to go into the promised land. And, and what he's saying to them is, yes, God allowed you to be disciplined. You needed discipline. Your parents needed punishment. He allowed them to be punished. But guess what? Now I'm preparing you. All of that prepared you to do what I have called you to do, which is take back the land that I gave to your father Abraham. And so therefore, I want you to remember that even though you were disciplined, I provided for you. I gave you manna. I gave you quail. I gave you water. And your sandals never wore out and your feet didn't even swell. You see, we don't want to forget that that's a part of Anfeshtung. It's not just the devil attacking us. It is God allowing that to happen. But just like Job, he restored Job to more than he had before the temptations began. Okay, so God is involved with it, but he is also using it for good. And that's what, that's what Moses is telling when Jesus quotes this. Now, Luke doesn't give us the whole quote. He says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Brothers and sisters, you can't get around this. If you want to conquer on Feshtun, you're going to have to stand on the word of God. Because that keeps being repeated over and over and over again. And so, therefore, um, Jesus continues to, uh, to, to bring that. Now, what, what he does is this. I almost lost my train of thought there. Um, what he does is this. By, by saying that, what he is actually saying to the tempter is that there's a greater sustenance that you're not aware of. There is a source of energy and a source of provision that you do not know about. And I am tapped into that. He, he, he said this in the fourth chapter of John. When he was talking to um, the woman at the well. 
And he, he said this, he said, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Remember his disciples came up and said, hey, <laughs> they're going to starve to death unless you eat something. Jesus says, I don't need that food. Goes on and he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's my food. Now, does that mean there's some kind of supernatural nourishment going on because he's doing the will of God? I don't know. Could be. I'm not going to say it's not. But I think what Jesus is stating here is that I, as a human being, am made up of my body and my soul. And when I do the will of God, my soul is nourished. And it's my soul that's going to live forever and not my body. And so therefore, I'm going to feed that soul. I'm going to nourish that soul because I nourish it by doing the will of God and standing on every word that comes out of his mouth. So that's not only the first temptation, but it's also that four-pronged strategy of Satan. Now, before I go on and I apply this to us, let me, let me restate something about this. And this is for Christians. This, this is not. If, if, if you're an unbeliever, you're at the mercy of the most powerful deceiver. And he'll lull you to sleep until you stand before your creator. But if you're a Christian, you need to know something, Christian. You have an enemy. You may choose to ignore it. You may choose to kind of push it to the side. But you have an enemy, and Scripture is absolutely clear about this. You have an enemy who is evil and hateful and malicious. He never sleeps. He never stops. He never rests. He will attack you 24-7, 365 and a quarter days every year. And he is far more powerful than you are. But that said, I don't want you to give him too much credence. I don't want you to go looking for Satan under every rock. Because that's actually not the way you're going to defeat or conquer on Feshtung. It's not going to be by, by fighting the devil. We want to fight the devil. We, we want to win. But it, it, you're not going to be able to do it on your own. You need to keep your eyes on God. And you need to recognize that God allows your suffering sometimes. He allows your temptation. But just like with Joseph, I mean, sometimes I mean, you realize he had to have been at least, at least a little bit tempted with Potiphar's wife. But he didn't succumb to it. And so therefore, God allows you to go through these so that you will make the right decisions. And oh, you grow so much when you make the right decisions in Anfeshtung. So I want to look, keeping the fact that God is the one who allows it sovereignly in the back of our minds. I want to just recap these four criteria, these four stratagem that the devil uses in a more modern context. First of all, he will wait until you're weak. He will hammer you like he did Job. Look at the way he hit Job. He hit him in his finances. He hit him in his relationships. He hit him in his marital relationships. He took his children away. He hit him in his health He hit him in every single way that he possibly could. And then when Job is weak, that's when the blitzkrieg from hell comes. That's the way he'll treat you. And let me tell you something. If he can't get to you, he will attack you through your children. He will attack you through your wife or your husband. If you don't believe that, look at every single one of your elders and their lives. Look at the staff of our school. Look at the administrators of our school. Look at the directors of this, of this small church. I mean, who are we? And yet every single one of us are suffering the infestation of Satan. And you know something? If he can't get to you, he's going to find your weakest link, the part of you that is the softest. He's going to find your daughter or your son or your wife, and he's going to put them through horrid Suffering, And then he's going to hold them up to you and he's going to say, look what you're doing. All you have to do is roll over. All you have to do is comply and I'll stop attacking your daughter. Trust me, we know this. He doesn't play good. He doesn't play fair. He doesn't play nice. So how on earth do you stand against him? How on earth do you go through that? 
Well, I want to share a single phrase with you. It's one that I repeat to myself almost daily. I repeat it every Sunday morning when I'm on my way out here to stand in this pulpit and bring you the word of God. It's Paul speaking to the Corinthians and he simply says, when I am weak, I am strong. When I am weak, I am at my strongest. Now, and what's, what's our inclination, folks? What do you do? Uh, okay, you know, when the tough gets going. No, when the going gets tough, the tough get going, right? So Satan comes at me, I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight you to the last breath. Well, guess what? You're going to get stomped on. Because he's far more powerful than you are. You know what you need to do? You need to run to Jesus. Because here's what Paul says. Let me put it in his broader context. He's talking to the Corinthians about his thorn in the flesh. And we don't know what that thorn was. It could have been physical. It could have been relational. It could have been emotional. It could have been in many different ways. But here's what he said. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. That it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Now listen up. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Brothers and sisters, when stratagem number one hits you and you're at your weakest, yeah, we want to fight, but run to Jesus Hide in the shadow of his wing. Because he's your strength. Second stratagem that the devil uses is to confuse you. To create doubt in your head as far as what God said. Did God really say that? Did he say, you really think that's what he means? Is that really relevant for today? And oh, brothers and sisters, as we've made ourselves our way through this study on over and over again, we've talked about the collision between the ethical standards of the kingdom and the ethical standards of the world and how the world just keeps seeping into the kingdom to where almost now we can't tell the difference because we've left the word behind and we have allowed the culture to dictate the culture is driven by Satan to dictate the way we interpret the word. Now. If I had a month of Sundays right now to preach on this, I couldn't cover everything. But let me just cover a few. The word of God says in the very beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Ex nihilo, out of nothing, God spoke and it was. All that you see, all that we are, God made. The devil says, no, he didn't. You've got a better plan than that. Science tells you that we're 40 billion years old, not just a couple of thousand years. And so therefore, we're going to come up with this theory of the Big Bang where we had a couple of meters point of singularity and exploded. And that's where the universe comes from. And you developed from pond scum. And people actually believe that. But you know, the tragedy of it is, is out of that is born Christian evolution. Where we say, wait a minute, you can't deny that. You gotta look at science. Science tells us this. Now the word of God says that, but you know something that was long ago. Maybe they just didn't realize all this scientific research we've got. And so we interpret the word of God by what science says. Brothers, that's, brothers and sisters, that's confusion. The word of God tells you that life is sacred to God. That He made us in His image. And that therefore it is an egregious sin to take the life of another. You shall not murder. And yet, the devil comes along and says, well, that's only true if a woman doesn't choose to do otherwise. Because whatever grows in her body is absolutely her free choice. So if she chooses to abort that child, then that's her free choice. And that supersedes God's word about life. Millions of Christians get abortions, folks. And something that floors me and just absolutely I cannot understand, even more Christians vote to put people in office who not only support abortions, but a support late 
term abortions and even post-delivery abortions. That's lunacy. The Word of God says that marriage is sacred. It is a sanctified institution established in the Garden of Eden. And it is the very building block upon which God built his entire society was the marriage between one man and one woman forever. And the devil comes along and says, well, that's not true. I mean, you know, you need to be able to express your sexuality in any way that you want to. That's just a bunch of, you know, old-fashioned stuff. That's puritanical. You need to be have as many liaisons as you want to, and it's perfectly socially acceptable. And who said that marriage was between one man and one woman? We can have marriage between two men. We can have marriage between two women. And even with that craziness, you can decide what your gender is. God made a man and woman. Well, I don't want to be a man anymore. I'll just be a woman. That's what the devil says. That's lunacy, right? Oh, brothers and sisters, you ought to see the churches falling like dominoes right now to try to comply with what the culture says. You see, that's confusion. And, and, and as I said, I can go on and on. The word says, God says to worship me and you shall serve no other. Satan's been saying since the Garden of Eden. No, you need to worship self. That's the God for you. The word says that the Sabbath is God's day and keep it holy. And the devil says, no, that's your day. Oh, throw a bone to God and turn on the TV for an hour and watch a worship service. And that's all you need to do. The rest of the day belongs to you. The word says there will be hell to pay for your transgressions against the holy God. The word says there will be judgment and there will be condemnation. That God is holy and therefore he is wrathful at your sin. The devil says that's a bunch of baloney. God's a good God. He's a loving God. That's the nicest thing you're going to hear the devil say about God. Oh, he's just your celestial grandfather. He winks at your sin. God would never send you to hell. He's not that kind of God. And once I again, we can go on and on and on. But we can see, if I were to go through, I think there's something like 586 commandments in the Old Testament. The Pharisees used to do this. I could go find every one of those commandments and I could show you how the devil has created exactly the opposite and how the church for the most part has incorporated that into its doctrine oh yeah the devil is very effective in unfechtung when it comes to creating confusion in the minds of people and that's the reason he just simply begins to lie and if you know something once he gets you confused then that's when he starts to hit you with the lies Now, we've already talked about the out-and-out lies that he told Eve and Adam in the garden. And we've talked about the faulty premises that he hit Jesus with. But Jesus himself said, you need to be careful. Because all the lying that goes on out there is not going to come at you from the culture. They're going to be false prophets. They're going to be false teachers. They're going to be wolves in sheep's clothing. And they're all going to have the same word on their smiling lips. Jesus loves you. Christ this and Christ that. You know, my heart breaks so often. I've had several conversations with people right here in our church. of What happens when a baby Christian first comes to know the Lord? And they are full of enthusiasm. And, you know, it's like my life is different. I'm going to live for the Lord. I'm going to turn off HBO and Netflix. I'm never going to go back to there again. I'm going to turn on Christian TV. And they turn on Christian TV. And the first place they go is TBN. And they see guys dancing around there, charlatans, saying they're speaking for the Lord. And that if you shovel to God with a little shovel, he'll shovel back to you with a big shovel. And all you have to do is donate a big portion to my ministry. And God is going to bless you in immeasurable ways. And immediately they get confused because that doesn't line up to what they've read in the word. So they switch the channel. And believe it or not, there actually is a channel called Franciscan TV. 
Franciscan monks have their own TV channel. And so you listen to them for a while and you find out that they pray to Mary, the mother of Jesus, that they put emphasis on the mass, that there is salvation in baptism and all these abject heresies. And you just get more and more confused because that seems to be a bold-faced lie. So you turn the channel to the charismatic station. And you see guys running around the, 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 the sanctuary barking like dogs and yelling and screaming and speaking in undetectable babble and lying on the graves of righteous people so that they can absorb their righteousness. So you quickly move past that channel to the liberal theologian channel that tells you that the Bible is just a bunch of Hebrew myths and that really the only thing you need to remember is that God is the universal father of all mankind and we have a universal brotherhood. And the only thing you need to learn from scripture is to love each other. You see, the words are filled. The world is filled with the lies of the devil. And I would have loved to have taken you back to the 12th chapter of Revelation because when the devil chases the radiant woman into the wilderness, the radiant woman representing the church, He tries to drown her with a flood. And that's a flood of lies, brothers and sisters. And that's exactly where we live right now. We are inundated with a flood of lies. So how do you stand against that? Where do you find the truth? Well, Jesus told us. It's not that hard. It's not rocket science. That's what this word is for. That's why God gave us this word. Turn to the word and you will find the truth. I mean, the psalmist. Say it beautifully. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 119. I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Also 119. I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against God. From Ephesians 6, Paul tells us to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Jesus told his disciples that the Word of God is truth. If you take on the truth of God, you stand on the Word of God. When Jesus is shown coming back at the time of judgment, there is a sword coming out of his mouth. That's the sword of his Word, brothers and sisters. So if you want to stand against all the lies that Satan is throwing at you and at the church, you stand on the Word of God. Because that's exactly where Jesus stood. One last thing. That is after the devil has you where he wants you. That's when he's going to hit you with the hounds of hell. The blitzkrieg from hell. When he has you where he wants you. So let me, let me give you just two quick and I'll let you go. I know I'm running long. Just two quick ideas. First of all, all through Ephesians 6. I'm going to add Ephesians 6 to your list of homework. Read Ephesians 6 because Paul tells us to put on the armor of Christ. And that's the way we're going to stand against the schemes of the devil. But for goodness sakes, brothers and sisters, put on the armor before you go into battle. Not after. It's ridiculous to go into battle with no armor on and all of a sudden you're facing your foes and they all have armor and spears and you say, oh, guess I better go get my armor on. No, that's not the time to put your armor on. The time to put your armor on is now. The time is in preparation. Because if you are a Christian, you will experience unfection. You will. Because if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the devil is going to do everything that he can do to destroy you. Because that's what unfection or part of that is. And so, I don't know that I could put it any better than James does. When we try to figure out how can we stand against the likes of Satan. Because what he says is this, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit yourselves to God, turn to God, run to God. He's your power, he's your source, he's the rock upon which you stand. His word, his decree, his will, his loving kindness to you, that's where you stand. Run to God, let him do your fighting for you. Because he's the one who has the strength. And then resist the devil. So how do you resist the devil? That's a big question, isn't it? How do you resist the devil? Well, let me give you um, a couple of verses here. First of all, from 1 Timothy. But as for you, O man of God, 
Flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. We read earlier from Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Brothers and sisters, the last thing that you want to do is dance with the devil. Please. The first part of temptation is called titilatio. It is that time when you think, I can deal with this. I'm just going to kind of dance. And oh, it feels so enticing. It is so sensual. The siren song is so appealing. And you just dance a little bit too far. And that's when the moray eel comes out of his hiding and goes whack and takes you. Don't dance with the devil, brothers and sisters. Run. Take a lesson from Joseph. Did he stick around and and dance with the devil there? No. He ran with no clothes on. I don't want you to run with no clothes on, but run. Flee. Don't sit around. Let me let me leave you with this. Okay, I know I'm uh, again, I know I'm going long. So let me just leave you with this. If you're a Christian, especially if you're one who walks in the ways of Jesus, you're going to suffer temptation. So let me just encourage you with four parting words about the temptation which is part of the unfeshtung of the devil. Number one, you will never be beset by any temptation that is not common to man. One of the things that the devil is going to want to do is to separate you from everyone else and make you feel totally alone. You will never be beset by any temptation. These are the promises of God. You will not be beset by a temptation that is not common to man. Two, you will never be beset by a temptation that is more than you can stand. I can almost guarantee you it will be more than you think you can stand. But it will not be. Because God will never tempt you to the point that you break. Because he is part of unfeshtung. And he has a different plan. You see, it's for good and not for evil. Third, you will never be beset by a temptation that your Lord Jesus Christ did not experience. For he was tempted in all ways, even as we are. You will never be beset by a temptation that our Lord Jesus Christ did not experience and conquer. That's why we use him as a model. And fourth, this is so important, brothers and sisters, you will never be beset by a temptation that is not the sovereign decree of God. It is outside of his will, outside of his dominion. That means that your temptation and your suffering, whatever it is, is overseen by a gracious, merciful, loving, compassionate, good God who has your best interest at heart. Nothing is ever going to beset you. That is not something that God allows to beset you. And again, the devil enjoys it and he means it for evil. God means it for good. Bottom line is this. Keep your eyes on God, not on the devil. Stand on the word and make good decisions. That's the way, brothers and sisters, that you conquer on feshton. Amen? Amen? God bless you. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is something that is so common to all of us. We all go through this. And it is so helpful to be able to see our Lord in the desert with no defenses. Uh, obviously, the Spirit is there. Obviously, he has his divine nature. And, but I, I think you've stripped him of, of, of his defenses to make him weak so that we can see what we should do. Because if Jesus was strong like Adam, he might have fallen like Adam. Because Adam was stronger than any of us will ever be. He's the top of the chain. And he fell. And so, dear Lord, teach us first to run to you. Run to you into the shadow of your wing. Depend on your strength. Stand on your word. And make good decisions. We'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.